Voy a ponerme la vacuna Prevnar 20 porque estoy en riesgo de contraer la neumonía neumocósica. La cual pudiera llevarme al hospital. Así que preguntaré sobre Prevnar 20. 65 años o más, puedes estar en mayor riesgo de contraer la neumonía neumocósica. Pregunta a tu médico o farmacéutico acerca de vacunarte con Prevnar 20. Vacuna conjugada antineumocósica 20 valente. Una vacuna de Pfizer que puede ayudar a proteger contra la neumonía neumocósica con una sola dosis. Prevnar 20 está aprobada para adultos para ayudar a prevenir infecciones contra 20 cepas de la bacteria que causa la neumonía neumocósica. La aprobación continua puede depender de un estudio de apoyo. No uses Prevnar 20 si has tenido una reacción alérgica grave a la vacuna o a sus componentes. Adultos con sistemas inmunitarios debilitados pueden tener una respuesta reducida a la vacuna. El efecto secundario más reportado fue dolor en el área de la inyección. Para más efectos secundarios comunes e información completa de prescripción, llama al 1-855-213-2138 o visita Prevnar 20 en español.com. Pregunta a tu médico o farmacéutico sobre Prevnar 20. It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hey everyone, how is the Nerdcore doing today? I want to welcome you to a brand new episode of Talk Nerdy. I am your host, Cara Santa Maria, and I just want to take a minute to thank all of you who listen each week, who support the podcast in every way that you do. Some of you do it by downloading, listening. Some of you will rate and review on iTunes and Stitcher, which really does go a long way. Some of you have reached out and purchased some swag off of my website at carasantamaria.com. That's huge because all the proceeds go to keeping the podcast 100% free to download. And some of you even make donations on the website. There is a secure link to go through to PayPal, and that is a huge, huge help too. So again, thank you all from the bottom of my heart. You are the most awesome nerdcore I could possibly imagine. And uh, with that business out of the way, I just want to go ahead and welcome my guest this week. I'm going to be sitting down with Dr. Alex Lockwood. She is a newly minted PhD from Caltech. She is an astrophysicist, astronomer, planetary scientist extraordinaire, and she recently developed a novel technique for learning more about the atmospheres of exoplanets. She's also the host of PhD Tours on PhD TV. That is a portion of PhD Comics. And she is the lead in the PhD movie playing Cecilia PhD. And if you don't know what any of that means, just sit tight because you'll learn all about it with Dr. Alex Lockwood. Alex, thank you so much for being here, for making the trek all the way to Shea Santa Maria. I know it's a bit far from Pasadena. Um, traffic, you know. Yeah, you know. <laughs> yeah, especially this time of day. Ugh. Um, so, so I introduced you before you sat down. You haven't heard it, so don't worry. I didn't say anything sneaky. Um, <laughs> but I'm really excited that you're here because I've been I've been excited lately. I was looking a while back at the people that I've interviewed on the podcast. I think I'm on episode 21 now, maybe even 22. That's nuts. Is that true? I'm looking that up as I talk to you. <laughs> Congratulations. Um, this is, yeah, this is crazy. And and I was counting up all of the the people that I've had as guests on the podcast. And I like really pride myself as being, gosh, you're episode 21. Wow, that's nuts. And so, so I'm counting and I pride myself as being like, okay, a lot of like women in STEM and these are concepts that we talk about a lot on the podcast. And then I was like, holy shit, I don't have as many women on the podcast as men. That's a terrible thing. It's not even half and half. And so I've been um, trying to be conscientious about that lately. And I'm really pumped that you, um, cause you're so busy that I was able to, to snag some of your time to have you on the podcast because I feel like you are just a total role model for young women who are interested in science. You yourself are quite young. I'm 28. I'm You're 28 and there. you just 
Right, getting up there. <laughs> you just finished your PhD at Caltech. And would you, is, was it specifically in astrophysics? Was it planetary science? Like, sometimes I get confused between all the terminology. Um, you know, are you an astronomer? Are you an astrophysicist? Are you a, like, hash that out for me a little. Yeah, uh, so my PhD was in planetary sciences, which at Caltech can be anything from, you know, studying a rock on Mars to doing dynamics of extrasolar planetary systems. So it, it really is a broad range. I focused on planet formation and a lot of chemistry and molecules within. Um, but the thing is, I usually sitting next to someone on a plane and I tell them that I'm an astrophysicist because... I do astronomy, I do physics, and if you tell someone you're an astronomer, four out of five times they ask me to read their palm. <laughs> and so, oh no, uh, it's a sad state of affairs, events, isn't it's it? Really sad. So, so astronomer, I'm assuming, is kind of a blanket term for anybody who does anything within any field relating to space. Yeah, and then astrophysics is a bit more specific because then that's space and specifically physics or the physical sciences and then you well probably just physics and then planetary science kind of has other components it's got chemistry it's got geology it's got all those things that kind of clump into it yeah yeah so astronomy a lot of people call themselves amateur astronomers because they have a telescope that they use to look and observe the sky which is awesome but they don't necessarily do all the math and sort of heavy lifting physics yeah so that that would be astrophysics um and then planetary science i really like because it's not abstract galaxies or, you know, a, a long, long time ago when the universe blew up in the Big Bang. It's, it's tangible planets, moons, but it's also the interaction between the atmosphere of a planet and its surface, which can tell you so much about the history of the planet. And really, it's really interdisciplinary. And I, I've really enjoyed learning about all of the different parts and how they work together. And that's that's how we're going to learn more. And, and that's was how we're finding. Was planets. your background getting into that field, physics? Is that where you started? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Because I know that there are some people uh, who do planetary science that are much more kind of geology focused, and then they get there and 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 are able to, like you said, uh, learn things from all these different disciplines that sort of come together yeah. in that field. So, so you specifically look at planets. Yes. And you had... It was basically the research that was involved in in your thesis, in your PhD thesis, that was published a few months ago. I remember when I was working, well, I was at Take Part Live at the time, I think, because we had you on the show to explain it a bit to some of our fans um, who had a lot of questions. But it was definitely all over the news media, which, what a cool thing, right? To have your name printed and all these different outlets about your research. It was, my friend sent me an email the morning being like, you're blowing up my, my Google News feed, you know, it's Times and Forbes and Science Magazine. And it was, it was really cool. Um, we, they took, we discovered, I, just really awesome and weird to say. <laughs> <laughs> um, we discovered water vapor on another planet. And it was a very novel technique. And so it's the novel technique plus the discovery of water. And then all the popular science magazines took that to alien water world. Sure. There's a Kevin Costner reference. <laughs> <laughs> um, but but it was, it was you know, I had a, my five minutes of, of fame. It was cool. It's very cool. I mean, and that is when we think about this term, right, exoplanets, which are planets outside of our solar system, we're, we're often looking for exoplanets that could harbor life. We're looking for, first we need to find a planet. <laughs> we need to find a star and see around that star, are there rocky things that are that are orbiting it? And then uh, we're very interested, right, just as curious people, is there life somewhere else in the, so in the, in the, God, is there life somewhere else in the universe, mm -hmm. preferably within our galaxy? That would be easier for us <laughs> to be able to get to, maybe. Uh, I was going to say, is there life out there in the solar system? And I guess some people are actually looking at that. There are people who are looking at Europa, um, mm -hmm. one of Jupiter's moons, to see if it could harbor life. I'm not sure how reasonable it is to think that there's maybe intelligent life somewhere else <laughs> in our solar system. But even any traces of life or traces of uh, biological processes somewhere else is like... Oh, it'd just be fucking amazing to discover. Yeah. But in order to have life, it seems like one of the main ingredients is water, at least from how we understand life to form. Yeah. 
as I take a sip of water. <laughs> it's quite necessary. Uh, um, yeah, I mean, there are, it's really interesting. A couple of years ago, I was at a conference and they're talking about looking, it's not, you know, from what we actually know of where liquid water can exist, you also need an atmosphere in order to increase the pressure because the phase diagram of liquid water uh, doesn't hit liquid um, or the phase diagram of water, excuse me, doesn't hit liquid until a certain pressure. So you need an atmosphere. So that means that if there was no atmosphere holding it in, the water would be gas, it would be vapor, or it, it would go, be yeah, ice? It, it, it'll go from vapor to ice, you know, and back. And never, and and never become liquid. through a water oh, interesting. Yep. And we definitely think of liquid water specifically as being one of the, the necessary ingredients for life. Absolutely. So, I mean, if we find water vapor in an atmosphere, like in our own, then it exchanges with the liquid water on the surface. But you need an atmosphere to create the pressure. Um, so we're, we're also looking for the atmospheres, which is all that we can probe at this point. We're not going to get down to the surface and find some water. But we can see signatures of atmospheres and uh, other things like nitrogen and oxygen and, and certain chemical compositions that we've seen as prebiotic. Okay. Or evidence of their, you know, certain... I'm not a biologist, but there's certain organisms that release certain chemicals or that are, you know, on the chemical pathways to biology. And mm. so we're not only looking for water, we're looking for those kinds of things like nitrous oxide, I think, and other things. Um, so things kind of on the periodic table that seem like they have been necessary based on our modeling for sustaining life or exactly. for uh, biogenesis. Exactly. So, so when you are looking for these things, I mean, y you mentioned that it was two things that really got the media excited. It was one, this novel technique, which I'm assuming is what you spent most of your uh, research career working on. Yeah. And two is this kind of discovery. Mm -hmm. So I want to start with the novel technique because honestly, I feel like I'm personally more interested in that. I think that's where kind of the scientific story is probably told, um, even though I know we love discoveries in the news media. That's that's always good clickbait when you say, oh, we found something that we never knew existed before. It's like, well, yeah, of course, I want to know about that. But how you went about finding that thing is really interesting to me. So this is a function, as you said before, of looking for things that tell us that there's an atmosphere present around a rocky planet. Is it a rocky planet specifically, or does it matter? It, well, this one's probably not a rocky planet. So is there, is there a, any way to know when you're first measuring for the atmosphere? Um, there's no real way to know, but this is a, a giant planet, so it's larger mm -hmm. than the mass of Jupiter. And from what we know of just what is available out in the universe... There's not that much rocks um, to make big planets. So oh, from our, the way that we know our solar system formed, the reason that Jupiter is where it is and is as big as it is is because ice material, water vapor ice, carbon dioxide ice, methane ice, ammonia ice, um, it was cold enough out there at Jupiter's distance to freeze. There was more of that, and it became a bigger planet, and then it attracted a bunch of gas. Okay. So there's, but, there's an ice core to Jupiter? Yeah, I mean, now, because of all the gas that's been piled on, it's mm. turned into liquid. Oh, interesting. Um, with, like, really, really high pressures in the center. But there was an ice core, and that, that's why it has gas, because the gas doesn't freeze out. It doesn't want to stay, but Jupiter's gravity pulled it in. Interesting. Okay, so, so the planet that you specifically discovered, what's its name? <laughs> it's funny to say. It is funny. <laughs> anyway, you say it. Um, so the star's name is Tau Budis. And the planet, it's the first planet we found, and it's the biggest planet around stars. So it's Tau Bootis B, or colloquially, the way that we say it is Tau Booby. Yep. Yeah. Because <laughs> yep. how do you spell that? T-A-U-B-O-O-B. Uh -huh. -O -O <laughs> it, it's boob. I mean, like, it's booby. <laughs> it's booby. It's the only way to say it. You um, found Tau Booby. <laughs> I, I said booby like 15 times in my thesis. <laughs> That's amazing. Not many people get to do that when they're defending in front of all of these like really important <laughs> <laughs> And with a straight face. <laughs> exactly. So Tau Booby, as we will call it throughout mm -hmm. the podcast. The boob. Um, yep, the boob. Tau Booby uh, is, you said, likely a gas giant because yeah. of its size and because of its distance from Tau Boo? Boo? Is that Ta what? Taboo. Yep. Taboo. Okay. Oh, it's uh, really close to Taboo. But because of its size, there just wouldn't have been enough rock material 
to then get a lot of gas. It's so cool how you can kind of model so many things in, in planetary science just based on your understanding of the math. You know, oh, yeah. that you can literally say, okay, if something is this size or if something is this distance or if this, uh, something has seems to have this kind of a gravitational pull, uh, you can, like, use a process of elimination to say it's probably not made out of this or it's mm -hmm. probably not capable of doing that because mm -hmm. it's just not physically possible. Yeah. that I mean, that's such a cool thing about physics that, I mean, m my background is in biology, right? So I guess I kind of have some of that understanding in, in how life forms, but... In the physical sciences, it just blows my mind. It's I I'm, I always have a million questions because I literally know nothing about it. <laughs> so we'll get back to Tau Booby in a second. But how you found Tau Booby? What is the normal way that um, that astrophysicists, or a lot of times they might even call themselves astrobiologists, because mm -hmm. specifically there is a group of scientists who are interested in finding, as we said, life elsewhere in the universe, and they have backgrounds in physics, geology, biology, chemistry generally, like crazy hard-working scientists, <laughs> and they want to know, is there a place out there that could harbor life? Because yeah. we have to find where it is before we can start understanding whether or not it can do that. So so whether you're an astrophysicist, an astronomer, uh, an astrobiologist, whatever you call yourself, there's a lot of change over there, a big part of kind of what we see in the news media now is um, if you follow science news media, new exoplanet found, new exoplanet, this one in the Goldilocks zone, this one in our new version of the Goldilocks zone. So let's kind of talk a little bit about what all of that means. There's actually a really beautiful feature in the most recent National Geographic about um, about exoplanets, about, um, as I said, Jupiter's moon Europa, and about rethinking the Goldilocks paradigm mm -hmm. and all of the different components that we think should be necessary for life to exist somewhere else in the universe and how maybe we've been a bit narrow mm. in our approach before. But, um, but outside of that, y you set out to find planets. And how do you find planets? Yeah. Um, so the way that um, I didn't find this taubooby, I didn't find the boob. <laughs> I just found some water droplets on it. Um, okay, well, that's like a big deal, too. So the boob, it, the boob had been known about. The boob had been known about. Um, so Taubutus um, B is actually one of the first-ish um, planets that was discovered, exoplanets discovered ever. Oh, wow. Um, it was back in 97, I think. And the first one was found in 95. Um, the very first time we ever found a planet outside of our own solar system was only in 1995. Mm -hmm. That's crazy. That's mm -hmm. like not that long ago. No. That's amazing how much science has happened within yeah. the last like, what is that, years. 20 years? Yeah, we found 1,000 planets. That's insane. Yeah. yeah. Oh, and, wow. And like 700 in the past like two years. <laughs> That's <laughs> so crazy. Amazing. Wow. Okay, so we've known about the boob for a while. Mm -hmm. uh, and... and the way what that we found it was because it's a big planet. It's bigger than Jupiter. And Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered ChumbaCasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And a big planet, um, one that's very close to its host star, which it, this one is, um, exerts a really large gravitational pull on the star. So... The planet goes around the star, but the star goes around the center of mass of the system as well. So the star moves in a little circle, it wobbles, and we can see that wobble as a Doppler shift of the, the star's light. Um, we know what the star should look like, and then if it's moving towards us or away from us, and if it's moving towards, away from us, towards, away from us, towards, away, you know, in a mm -hmm. circle, we can see that, and we can detect the planet. So we knew the planet was there, but... We don't know everything about the system because we only detect the motion in our line of sight. So we wouldn't even detect it at all if, if the entire orbit was face on. So if it looked like a circle, 
the star wouldn't be moving towards or away from us at all. It would uh, just be moving in a circle like It'd be moving kind of up and down up and in down. that plane and we wouldn't be able to find it. Yeah. Oh, wow. So, and so any amount of tilt that it's tilted towards us, uh, we can't tell the difference. Mm. We can tell that it's moving, but we can't tell the difference. So and because so Doppler shift specifically only tells us if something's moving towards us or away from us. Exactly. Okay. So there's a degeneracy um, in how strong the signal is going to be and the alignment of the system. Sure. Um, and so we can't really tell how big the planet is. Because mm. it was a really big planet, but only a tiny bit of the system was towards or away from us. It'd be the same thing as if it was completely towards and away from us in a small planet. Interesting. So there's a breakdown there of knowledge. Um, so what we did was we took a technique that's actually been used for years on double star systems where we said, okay, you can measure a star moving. Okay, you can measure another star moving. They're moving around each other. And, you know, it's a, they move consistently around each other, called the spectroscopic binary. And we've been doing this for 50 years. Okay. Um, and then we turned it around and said, well, if we really, really use really precise techniques and get really good data, we can find the planet moving as well as the star. So instead of looking at a binary star system, you can say in all practical means, a big enough planet yes. is kind of doing the same thing just to a lesser extent with yes. its parent star than two stars that are orbiting each other. Yes. Oh, interesting. So so you said it's called binary spectroscopy? Did yeah. I say that wrong? Okay. So binary meaning that there's two bodies, two mm -hmm. celestial bodies involved. And spectroscopy, let's talk a little <laughs> bit about what that is. <laughs> uh, so spectroscopy is the other side of astronomy that's not those beautiful images. You know, I, I love seeing them from Hubble and Nebula and Supernova and all that stuff. Um, but it's really where most of the work gets done. And it's the idea that certain molecules, any molecule really, has different electronic bands. And as an electron changes from one electronic band to another, it's changing its energy, mm -hmm. which is either absorbing a photon or emitting a photon of a very specific wavelength of light. Okay. So let's say that it's cooling down, a molecule is cooling down, an electron changes from a higher to a lower electronic band. It releases energy in the form of a photon, which is a specific wavelength. And that's a, a photon is a packet of light. A photon is exactly a particle of light. Okay. And so it releases energy, light, at a very specific wavelength of light. And we know because we've measured all of the electronic bands of all of the elements and all of the molecules here on Earth. We know that if I see, you know, this precise wavelength of light, it means that there's hydrogen there. Mm. Or if I see this specific wavelength of light, it means there's water there. And is this all happening within the visible spectrum of light or does it happen beyond it also? It's a good question. Uh, it happens everywhere, depending on the uh, for atoms, it's pretty much in the ultraviolet. Okay. Um, a little bit higher frequency than visible, but for molecules, um, they move different ways. And so it's really interesting because you can study their electronic transitions. You can study them vibrating. Molecules vibrate. They rotate. And this happens in infrared wavelengths, um, in millimeter wavelengths, in the visible, and in the UV. Okay. So you have to have different tools available to you to detect things that maybe we could see, well, we probably can't see with our naked eye because they're too far away, but ostensibly we could see with our naked eye because they're within the visible wavelength. That's basically a rainbow, mm -hmm. all the different colors that we can see. Mm -hmm. Or things that are, like you said, ultraviolet, so those are beyond violet. We can't see them, but they give us cancer when we lay out in the sun for too long. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> <laughs> and um, maybe even different other, other kinds of rays yeah. on the spectrum. Okay, because yeah. that's that whole, you you guys remember this, the electromagnetic spectrum, really big wavelengths, really small wavelengths, it's a whole spectrum, and in the yeah. middle we can see stuff. We can't see other things, but some things are dangerous, some things aren't. Yeah. Microwaves, radio waves, all that good stuff. You know what's right. really cool? Huh. Radio waves, do you remember back in the day when cars had antennas? Well, yeah. <laughs> the size of a car antenna is the size of the wavelength of radio waves. Really? Yes. 
That's, that's why it was this big, long, meter-long thing is because, because that was the size of the wavelength, and so it that's it absorbed a wavelength. It had to capture an entire wavelength across the length. I always thought yeah. like the tip was just closer to the sky or something. That's <laughs> I always assume like the higher up it went, yeah. the better it was at like I don't know, like a like a lightning rod or something. Yeah. yeah. Oh, how funny! So if a wavelength is is physically that tall in the air, yeah, it would pass over it and it would capture both the the peak and the valley, and it would know that it was like a whole signal yes oh my god that's cool isn't that awesome we just learned something new you guys <laughs> i love it i love learning new things so oh that's crazy so okay so like we said there's x-rays there's gamma rays there's radio waves microwaves visible waves uv all these things so different molecules when they're excited or when they're less when they're de-excited mm -hmm. what's the word for that is there a word for that the de-excitation yeah all right. <laughs> you got look it look at me um they they give off uh, a particular measurable signal somewhere on the electromagnetic spectrum mm -hmm. Okay, and, and it's then, distinct, and it's distinct every time, no matter what. You can say that's nitrogen, that's oxygen, yes. that's carbon. Yeah, okay. my favorite analogy is: you go to an, an orchestra, you go to the symphony, and you hear all the music. It's beautiful together, but you can pick out, oh, that's a cello, or oh, that's a clarinet. Yeah. If you look at a nebula, you see all of the light together. You can get a big, pretty picture, or you can take a spectra, and you can say this line belongs to nitrogen. This line belongs to carbon dioxide. So it's kind of a way to filter everything else that as of, depending on your context and what you're looking for is quote unquote noise. You can mm -hmm. filter away all the noise and just look for that one thing. Like, yes. you know, I could probably go to an orchestra and pick out specific instruments because I know those instruments and I love those instruments. And then there might be other things where I'm like, I don't quite know what that is, but I like the way it sounds. So I'm assuming it's one of those things where you have to have a very specific tool and you have to have a specific eye. Yes. You have to know what you're looking for mm -hmm. before you can find it. Yeah. You and we found new molecules also by being like, I have no idea what that That's line crazy. is. crazy. So yeah. if you have, if you have spectra that doesn't pair with the things that we've discovered in mm -hmm. labs here on earth, then we know that there's some, something that's not on our periodic table that probably should be. Yeah. That's crazy. That's cool. Yeah. Do we add them to the periodic table or do we not know enough about them to do that yet? So because we're in outer space, you, you only have, I mean, you're working with a handful of elements. We're not finding new elements in outer space, but oh, we're finding new molecules. Okay. So stuff that's on our periodic table is combined in ways mm -hmm. that we've never seen it combined before. Exactly. That's really cool. So this is something that people use uh, spectroscopy all the time in, in planetary sciences. It's how they learn about, you know, what the surface of something that they can reach is made of. Mm -hmm. And so this idea, what, what you applied to this is this idea of instead of the, the process that we were using to look at stars, two, we'll stars. Look, two stars, we'll say one star, one planet, mm -hmm. and we'll look at those little shifts and wobbles mm -hmm. and be able to um, make calculations based on that. Mm -hmm. And so doing that, is it, easier or is it harder or is it just that you can apply it in new areas to maybe traditional ways of using straight spectroscopy to look at exoplanets so like currently the way that the spectroscopy is used is for that radial velocity method i mentioned that measures a stellar wobble and okay. you find the planet but you get a limited amount of information with this other technique when you're measuring directly the planet you Basically, you solve the whole mathematical equation and you figure out exactly how big the planet is and exactly how it's oriented relative to you. Oh. And in doing the process as well, because we've spent 100 years characterizing stars, we know them really well, so we know exactly what their spectral, their spe spectra, spectral signal, their mm -hmm. spectroscopy, we know what it looks like. But with planets, we have to say well, I think that there's going to be this molecule in the atmosphere. So, so far in exoplanets, we've found methane, we've found carbon dioxide, we've found water. Um, really, the things that are basic and abundant uh, as molecules out there, we found them in exoplanets so mm -hmm. far. And so we use basically educated guesses to say, I think this is going to be in the atmosphere. And then you look for it. And you have to be able to look for it look for the lines that are shifting. And so you make a guess ahead of time and then you look for it. And we did that with water and we found water. But... Oh, I completely lost <laughs> 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 
But so so you can um, find water though mm-hmm. on like you said there are other exoplanets that have water on them that people have been able to discover. Yeah. So what's so those the, all the other planets that have been able have ha, had molecules found on them mm-hmm. they transit their host stars which means that they are oriented such that their paths cross in front of the star. And so the starlight comes through the atmosphere of the planet as we're seeing the system, as, it cro- as the planet crosses in front of the star, the starlight comes through the atmosphere of the system, and then we can figure out what's in the atmosphere. Uh, weird. It's kind of like the first time that we found out about Venus, right? Because we have that transit of Venus, and mm-hmm. we were able to use the information about if the, once Venus passes in front of the sun, the sun gets just a tiny bit less bright, and then yes. we were able to really, back in the day, learn about this planet that was so close to us. Yes, exactly. Okay, so similar thing here, except that sunlight is actually, not sunlight, but starlight. Our star is called the sun. <laughs> <laughs> Some people Those are other know suns, that, actually. Yeah. Um, but that starlight or their sunlight, mm-hmm. um, actually, because it's almost, because it's bat- backlit by their star. Exactly. We can see their spectrum. Exactly. You see like a halo. I see. But your star and but your planet is not like that. Uh, it does not block the star's light. So this opens up ways to study all sorts of planets that we know exist, but that we can't measure. Exactly. Wow. Before Kepler, the Kepler Space Telescope launched a couple years ago, mm-hmm. and it's found hundreds of planets that transit their host star. That's yeah. what it's done, and it's it's been amazing. Uh, it's you know, stared at one tiny part of the sky and found 700 planets already. That's insane. But before that, yeah, for the first 15 years of exoplanets, there were 300 planets discovered using this other technique, mm-hmm. ones that don't transit. And so now we're opening up that population to finding out the true mass, understanding the inclination, which inclinations themselves or the orientation of the orbit. Okay. That's what inclination is, is really interesting for planet evolution and all that stuff. And also both of and those things are kind of part of, they, they, they interact with one another to give yes, you information. Exactly. They depend on one another. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So those are two things that depend on one another that you don't know if you just find the planet using this method, but now we know, and we're getting atmospheric information. So it, because it's a very, very small signal from the planet. I mean, you know, even Jupiter, even Jupiter or bigger than Jupiter is such a big planet, but compared to something that's making its own starlight, it's very dim. Yeah. So we're just in the beginning of the technique and there's six or seven candidates that we've already observed that we're, we've identified as could be really good for this technique. But as telescopes get bigger, which they are, and as techniques get better for understanding the Earth's atmosphere and exoplanet atmospheres we're we're pushing the limits and we're going to really move into understanding the entire subset of exoplanets oh wow and so knowing then being able to look for does it have water which i mean obviously to an astronomer or to an astrophysicist, you're not just looking for water. You're not like water, no water. Okay, screw you. You're not interesting <laughs> or important anymore. You're mm-hmm. obviously like wanting to learn everything that you can mm-hmm. about everything out there so that we can have just so that we can forward our, further our knowledge and have this like amazing catalog of space. Like that's what we would love to do. Mm-hmm. But as you specifically found water droplets in the atmosphere, does that lead you to think that there is liquid water anywhere? Or is that not necessarily related? Well, I mean, they're often related if there was a surface to this planet. I see. But because it's so big, it doesn't seem likely that this planet has a surface. Yes. But this technique could totally be applied to a rocky planet all the same. Yes. Okay. So there's nothing specific about a gas giant or a smaller rocky planet to the way that you're doing this measurement. No. We just have to keep pushing our technique because a rocky planet is probably going to be smaller. And Mm -hmm. so it's going to have less of a signal. And so, so it's going to be even that much harder to find. Yep. Uh, all right. All right. I'm getting it. I'm getting <laughs> it. This is interesting. I, I'm not sure I completely got it from the way that a lot of the science was reported. Uh, yeah. <laughs> immediately after. And I think that this is a typical eye roll for a lot of scientists. Yeah. It's a big problem that, you know, we in, and I'm including you as well, but we in science communication um, struggle with because you're kind of on both sides of that fence. You are actively doing research, but you also do your part in science communication. And so I want to switch gears a little bit.
bit um, and talk about the other side of Alex's career. I mean, she's been spending, you know, obviously dedicating the majority of her time over the past few years to doing this research at Caltech. And uh, it, it all kind of ended in the culmination of, of getting her PhD uh, recently. When did you walk? June. June. A month ago. I shouldn't say when did you walk. When did you get hooded? Who did? Uh, who did? You got your who did you? Um, so cool. So congratulations. Um, one month. One month the doctor. <coughs> <laughs> and forever the rest of my life. <laughs> exactly. Oh. You've got it. So so um so while she was doing this, she was keeping quite busy because a few years ago you became involved with Jorge Cham and his comic strip that he he does called PhD Comics when you guys all started working together to make a movie. Yeah. <laughs> and okay, by the way, I love this movie. I have an actual Hello, it is Ryan and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lol. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Actually plug this movie on the podcast. Yeah, I really hope to see like a spike in PhD, the PhD movie sales. That's what it's called. It's called The PhD Movie and you can buy it, I think, at PhDComics.com. I'm yeah, assuming. The P, well, you, I think it's PhDMovie.com. Oh, great. Yeah. Or PhDMovie.com. Um, and so Jorge's comic strip is sort of like the tale of this group of kids who are working through getting their PhDs mm -hmm. and all of the good and the bad and the ugly and the stresses. And it's really funny. And I definitely recommend you read it if you don't already, especially if you're in academia, because it will speak to you, I promise. Um, and one of the characters is um, played by Alex in the original PhD movie. So tell me, uh, tell them, because I've seen it like multiple times. <laughs> tell them a I little. I remember you had a crush on one of the characters. Yeah, I might have had a crush maybe? on one of the characters until somebody told me that he was an undergrad. And then I was really yeah. embarrassed. I think he's of age finally. <laughs> <laughs> good to know. Good to know. Keep that in my back pocket. Um, yeah, so, so uh, this movie, and it also features uh, Crystal Dilworth, mm -hmm. who was on the podcast just a couple of weeks ago, if you remember that. But Alex is, is the lead in this film. And tell me a little bit about your character and what she's dealing with. Um, so I love playing Cecilia. It was a total out of the blue. Never expected. I mean, I, I guess I moved to L.A., but I didn't, <laughs> didn't think it would lead to being in a movie. Um, but I've read the comics for years. And Cecilia is she's a computer science grad student. So I'm not a computer science grad student, but. I can, you know, fake it till you make it. Um, <laughs> no, I could, I could not do that. Um, but, but you understand the struggles. There's a bit exactly. of, there's a bit of crossover. It kind of yeah. doesn't matter. At there's a, a lot point. of, uh, wondering what you're doing with your life. And, uh, also in the, I mean, same in the movie. It was very much while I was filming it, I was in my third year of grad school and she's going through the, what am I doing with my life? Am I ready to move on? Am I dedicating too much time to research or not enough time to research? And, um, it's balancing her life and, you know, there's dealing with undergrads is a lot of her character. Which oh, right. Cause she's teaching like, it's either, I think it's like a recitation, mm -hmm. a recitation, I should say some sort of like study group yeah. for her professor and the undergrads are just such a hot mess. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and she figures out that, you know, the less she tries, the more they pay attention, which is <laughs> a terrible life lesson, but <laughs> But it's definitely something that I think, you know, that that was one thing that resonated with me when I watched it, because when I was in graduate school, a uh, big part of, well, part of why I went into the field that I went into, into science communication, part of why I left my PhD um, was that the whole time I was working on my master's and then a bit into the PhD that I started, I found myself really enjoying teaching and kind of not wanting to be in the lab that much. And so I thought it was really funny and fun and really resonated with me because a lot of my fondest and most frustrating memories from grad school were in the classroom. Mm -hmm. And uh, the one student who's like, is this going to be on the test? <laughs> like over and over. I was like, oh God, every class had one, one or 10 of them. Yeah. <laughs> and then there was the one student in the movie who in the end was really inspired, you know, and feel like after beating your head against the wall 15 times, you finally make it through a yeah, little to bit. to the one person. Yeah. But it, that's yeah. what makes it worthwhile. Mm -hmm. Because unfortunately, 
you know, you do probably reach all of your students to some extent, but there, the moments where it's really cemented are not as often as you'd like them to be, but they really are meaningful and they have a lot of depth to them if you take the time to really, you know, marinate over it and, and realize, okay, I worked really hard this semester and I really tried to connect and, you know, this one kid or these five kids, whatever it may be, I could tell that there was something there. I could, t I could see the light bulb go off over their head and that's what really makes it worth it. Yeah. Oh yeah. I, I, I love, I, I feel very blessed to be in astronomy mm -hmm. because you get a lot of those aha moments. You get a lot of the, wait a minute, this is made out of that. And that's why, you know, Venus is the way it is or yeah, I love it. And very cool. Yeah. And so, so this movie that you did, this was, what year was it? Can you remember? I, I feel like, it was, was it like three, four years ago? I think we filmed it. Yeah. Three years ago. I think okay. in 2011. And so it is like this phenomenon <laughs> where people who love PhD comics obviously saw that the movie was being made, were, you know, aware of the process when it was released. They watched it. Jorge sells the movie, um, as I think you can download it. He also sells mm -hmm. it as a DVD, I'm pretty mm -hmm. sure. But you can also get screenings in your university. And yeah. there have been, you guys have gone on a lot of tours with the movie, done talks about the movie. Um, very cool aspect of the movie is that it was filmed on Caltech campus, completely made by graduate students. It's about graduate school, but everybody involved in the process was a graduate student. Yeah, I still get emails from people being like, I just saw the movie and I thought it was really awesome. And then I looked you up and I found out you were an actual grad student, not an actor. And I was so happy. <laughs> <laughs> and it's true. And it's not just you and the other actors. It was the DP. It was the director. It was the producers, the writer. Like everybody who was involved other than Jorge was uh, actively working on their graduate degree, right? Yeah, we had, um, we had, they were all intimately involved at Caltech. I think Jorge used to be an instructor there. Mm -hmm. So he had a connection. There were mostly grad students, some undergrads, a lot of postdocs, some faculty. Some oh the yeah, faculty they're definitely professors in, who real? play professors. Yeah, MacArthur Genius Awards, a Nobel <laughs> Prize winner, just, you know, making a cameo in our movie. <laughs> Amazing. Um, and funny, too. Like, it's a funny movie. It's not meant to be super, super serious. Like, oh, no. You know, there are definitely parts where you're like, oh, that's so sweet. Or, you know, there, <laughs> there are things that happen, but it's definitely really funny. It doesn't take itself too seriously. And we're all very excited because it looks like you guys have decided to go for a round two. Yeah. Um, I am leaving the country soon, and it sort of prompted... Jorge Cham, the writer, uh, to really want to make another movie. Um, and so we we launched a Kickstarter because it's very expensive to make a movie. And we made it super low budget the first time, but people got really tired in the process. I'm sure. I mean, and they were volunteering their time mm -hmm. for no pay. Yeah, like they were no doing pay. it for free, which <laughs> yeah. is really hard to do, especially if you are starving college student yeah. and you know the an extra 50 bucks a day can really go a long way but when you have that many people working on a movie even something like 50 bucks a day is uh, it's expensive yeah but you know it's like at a certain point you do have to kind of pay people for their time yeah yeah <laughs> so that we got away with the first one yeah. um on before volunteers. anybody was a was a savvy right too. right <laughs> oh, yes. the good old days um, yeah but but so we knew you know we needed a budget plus like post-production we, we have our editors, phenomenal. Um, she was the wife of a person, of a postdoc at Caltech, and but she's like a professional editor. So that takes a lot of money and time. Um, well, and especially, yeah, there's like, it's one thing to do for me, like a five minute video for the internet, which even then I, when I was doing Talk Nerdy, I employed a full-time producer editor mm -hmm. to do those Talk Nerdy pieces once a week. To do a whole film takes yeah. a long time. And you really can't do it with just one person. Like yeah. they need an editing team. Yeah. So... So we did a Kickstarter to get some money, and we had a goal of 100000 which is still super cheap to make a movie. Oh, totally. Um, but we surpassed it and then some. And um, so it looks like we're going to be filming in the next couple of months. And Your uh, schedule's about to get crazy. 
Yeah. So because what what you don't know, listening, because why would you, um, unless you've been like weirdly stalking Alex, is that um, she just mentioned she's leaving the country soon and she's leaving the country to take a really exciting new job in a place that to me sounds really scary. So I'm kind of excited to dig a little bit, Alex, and get to know kind of a little bit about what the job is and also how you're feeling about this kind of new chapter in your life, which I know, I know it's exciting, but it's intense. So how did this all come to be? So um, I'm moving to Saudi Arabia, which never thought I'd say that in my life. Yeah. Um, Most people don't go to Saudi Arabia because you can't, Mm -hmm. you can't just get a visa. Uh, You can go if you're going for work, if you're going to visit family or if you're going to take a Muslim pilgrimage. Otherwise, there's no visiting. Interesting. <clears throat> yeah. So um, what happened was I defended my thesis uh-huh. and I was finishing up some research. Uh-huh. I was looking for um, opportunities in science outreach. Um, not really actively. I was still heavily involved in research. This was a couple of months ago. Yeah, I mean, kind and of a standard place for a lot of people as they're finishing their PhD. Kind of like, I think I should probably figure out how to make money, but I'm really <laughs> busy right now. So Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's one of those things that life is impending, but you still don't want to deal with it. Exactly, <laughs> yeah. Um, but I, happenstance, ran into the former president of Caltech, mm-hmm. who last year was... Um, Swiped away by a new university in Saudi Arabia. Um, Which is why when we were at a pool party, I was at a pool party a couple weeks ago. If you remember when I was recording uh, my podcast with Joe Hansen, I was describing that we were in the interim president of Caltech's upstairs. (laughs) We were at a pool party for... uh, a friend who was house-sitting for the interim president of Caltech. So uh, it was kind of yeah. a random connection there. But okay, so <laughs> this is the former president of Caltech, who yeah. I'm assuming you had uh, developed a relationship with it during your tenure there. Yeah, I mean, I had I was involved in certain organizations, and so I had dinner with him several times mm. over the years, and we were sort of on a wave-to-each-other-on-campus basis. And was he um, involved in astronomy was that his background was that his field was he particularly interested in it no 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 um i was involved with him through other campus organizations oh interesting um he's a he's an engineer by trade yeah and you know once you get to be the president of a university you're just involved in administrative stuff but he's i mean he's he's a really amazing guy um and i ran into him he was back visiting caltech a couple of months ago and he moved to this other university and everyone sort of questioned why he's getting older and he was going to retire at Caltech in a few years. And instead he makes this very big jump to go to a new university in the middle of nowhere, essentially. In Saudi Arabia. In Saudi Arabia. It's yeah. called the, the King Abdullah University of Science and Technology. And it was started five years ago by the king because they're, he's really looking to forward the country's like, um, basically instead of being dependent on fossil fuel, they're looking to work on things like desalination, which as a desert country surrounded by water is very important to them. Yeah. And solar energy, they're really looking for new initiatives in that, ways to protect their environment, including the Red Sea and, you know, desert agriculture, really interesting stuff. It's very forward thinking, Mm -hmm. which I don't usually associate with Saudi Arabia, but I'm beginning to. Interesting. Okay. And anyway, so the president of Caltech went there and I ran into him. It was like, an evening on Saturday evening on Mm -hmm. Caltech's campus. And I ran into him and got to speaking and was very fortunate in that he's very into science outreach as well. I mean, he's a very forward thinking man. And I think he understands the vision of his new university is really more global Mm -hmm. um, in terms of what they can do. And he created a position for me. He said, you know, if you want to come, I will, I make this job for you where I'll be working with the president, but I'll be kind of a science liaison between the scientists at the university and the more international community. Oh, interesting. Um, Because it's definitely not something that you would want. You wouldn't want to be in a silo there, right? Like the whole idea, if you're trying to come up with, if you're trying to develop initiatives for a country and a culture um, to, you know, decrease your dependence on fossil fuels and to increase your ability to protect basically your environment. Mm -hmm. That's not something that you can do in a vacuum. No, no. I mean, they have really great ideas and tons of resources. It's amazing how 
as opposed to a lot of the U.S. and European institutions, they're the government is just funneling money into research. Yeah, I mean, that's something that you hear a lot from um, from non-democratic societies. You know, it's like, it's one of those things where, of course, I wouldn't trade it for anything. I'm sure you wouldn't either. Like, mm -hmm. to live in a democracy, obviously, and to have those uh, opportunities available to you. It's not like you're, like, denouncing your citizenship <laughs> to go work there. Like, you're American. Yeah. And you live in a democracy. And there are amazing things that, I mean, it's the, it's the best governmental system you can come up with. But there is something about in uh, both in monarchies and in dictatorships, you actually see that if the government makes a decision, they don't have to rely on the people. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, that usually ends in total detriment, but once in a while, yeah. it can actually work in the favor of the populace because if the, the crown does decide this initiative is important, make it happen. It'll they can happen. do whatever they're going to do and there's no bureaucracy in, in, to get in the way. So in this specific, very specific carved out <laughs> case, that's such a boon. Like that's so exciting. Yeah. Um, and so it makes me wonder, I mean, because what a cool job. First of all, you're going to be able to make so many great connections with so many people in the international community, both in, um, in physics and geology, basically in, in all the different energy fields, um, work with these scientists here, which I think you did mention too, is going to be something of like a multinational community. It's, oh, it's a very yeah. Western kind of a campus yeah. Yeah. in this area. But at the same time, you are moving to a place that is known for having horrific oppression of women and mm -hmm. you are a female scientist. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's, I know that you visited once already. Mm -hmm. And so, and I'm, I'm assuming that part of the reason you visited was to be like, can I handle this? Yeah. Yeah. It, it was very different. Uh, I mean, if you, you know, go outside the walls of the university and it's literally walls because they have to wall off areas to make them so, in, so called private so mm -hmm. that you don't have to wear, you know, a, a full Muslim covering. Wow. Um, so, so if you leave the university, are you expected to wear a burqa? Not a burqa. Okay. Um, so a burqa is basically head to toe. Yeah. What you have to wear is an abaya, which covers, it, it's essentially a bathrobe. It covers everything from shoulders down. Okay. Do you have to wear anything over your hair? As a Western woman, you do not. Okay. Most Muslim women choose to um, as part of their modesty. So, but you do see women in burqas. Mm -hmm. You know, driving down the street, I would see a family, little kids wearing regular clothes you'd see in America, a woman in a burqa, and a guy in board shorts. Well, and it's funny because you, I mean, to some extent you see that here. Like I've definitely, it's not common, common, but it's also not uncommon yeah. in certain parts of America where people, where women, I should say, do wear burqas on the street. I mm -hmm. mean, it's a bit like, takes you a bit aback mm -hmm. because in my mind, as somebody who's not much of a cultural relativist, as somebody who's very much, um, like for equal rights of women across the world, it makes me think like, oh, patriarchal society, uh, you know, religious oppression and all these things. And it, it hurts my soul. Um, <laughs> uh, I don't believe in the soul, but it hurts something that resembles a soul. Um, and, and, but, but it is a thing and it is a choice and, and, you know, it's a very complicated issue. Mm -hmm. Um, but you see it here too. But that's the funny thing is that it's the woman is covered head to toe and it's like you can only see her eyes through this little slit. And then her husband, like you said, is like in board shorts and a tank top. Yeah. They it, have I, the, the definition for modesty. Um, I believe it's from the Quran. I'm not exactly sure. Mm -hmm. But it does say that men and women should be modest in the Quran. I know it says that. And what they consider modesty for women is basically shoulders to knees. And for men, it's from like the navel to the knees. Mm, mm. Um, and it it's very different, but it's also, it was interesting. I'm, I'm reading a, a book uh, that was recommended to me about the Arab culture. Yeah. And it's saying that in the past 10, 15 years, the number of women in countries like Europe or Tunisia where, or Turkey, where they don't, they, it's a much, it's not like an Islamic state. Yeah, like in so, I was just recently in France, and there's a big kind of group of Muslim people who are settling in, in Paris. Mm -hmm. um, it's interesting to see that the Muslim population is growing, but it's not an Islamic state. I mean, it's, yeah. a, it's a Western yeah. country with, you know, uh, uh, democracy. Right, any rules. Yeah. But the number of women in, in those countries, Islamic women, um, who are choosing to wear abayas mm -hmm. or burqas is rapidly increasing. Interesting. 
despite the more globalization and the, you know, the freedoms that are being given in, in these countries, many of the women do have the right to vote now. And, mm-hmm. you know, Saudi Arabia of all places is, is women were granted the right to vote, but it hasn't been enacted as of, I think last year they were granted the right to vote, but it doesn't start until this coming year. Mm-hmm. Um, but in Saudi Arabia, it's even of all of the Islamic countries, it's probably w- the most conservative. Yeah, definitely. And so, I mean, there are definitely places like um, Qatar and other places that are we think of as being Arab and, and very Islamic that are like much more progressive yeah. and much more forward-thinking. And even they have... Uh, just basically because there's so much religious influence at the governmental level, which is, you know, something that I talk about on the podcast a lot as being a huge problem is like, I'm very pro the American constitution. Exactly. Because it separates church and state, or at least it attempts to. And (laughs) secular government, I think is incredibly important to prevent things like oppression, like in a country, you know, it, it's hard to say what's cause and effect, but it doesn't hurt. There's definitely probably a large correlation between a religious influence in the government and the fact that women still can't vote there, right? So, I mean, first and foremost, how freaking cool to be in Saudi Arabia during the time when suffrage actually goes through. Like, that you'll be able to see what's happening on the news, see what's happening. I mean, granted, there may be areas that are unsafe. It may be a bit scary, but at the same time, this kind of revolutionary spirit and the excitement of... I mean, how cool would it be to go to the polls and see women voting for the very first time in their lives? Wow, I hadn't even thought of that. I know. Like, it's, I that's, mean, that's going to be so cool. I would love I would love it if you would write something about it because I think everybody would love to read about that when it happens. Um, but how do you feel having to put on cover in order to leave and also it's not just that you have to stay covered don't you need a chaperone or is that like not a thing well my parents actually met in saudi arabia really yeah how random and cool how random and cool and i had no intention of going there ever so you're very very i mean white so like where what ethnicity are you um you know, European mud. Yeah. Okay. So, um, so they were in Saudi Arabia, what for? Like military They were both or working for different airlines. Oh. Um, my mom was a stewardess. My dad was a consultant and they met in an airline like compound where they have, they have a lot of these, you know, more Americanized mm-hmm. separate private areas. Um, so they met there 30 years ago and their first date was in a bowling alley because it was one of the only places that men and women could be together in public and they, but they had to pretend that they were newlyweds already on their first date. Oh, how funny. So, you know, that was 30 years ago where you couldn't be seen with, you know, you have to show papers if you're with a, a man or a woman. Yeah. Um, I think it's less strict now because when I went to visit uh, a married male friend that I made in Saudi, mm-hmm. um, accompanied me and, and a friend of mine who was also a female out to dinner to show us around the town a little bit. And it was fine. Um, Okay. Do you think part of that's because you're Western? I think so. I've heard that, um, that kind of like you can be out with a male chaperone who's not a member of your family because you don't have any family. Like you don't have an older brother. Yeah. No walk around. There's no one for better, for worse to protect me there. And is that the, I mean, what is the, the thinking or do we really even fully understand the thinking behind a woman not being able to just walk this street on her own? It's, you know, I, I can't say that I understand it fully, but it all, you know, it all derives from the Quran and it, they take their religion so very seriously there. Mm-hmm. One of the weirdest things that, it, that first occurred to me when I went to visit is the call to prayer. Mm-hmm. Five times a day, work stops, everything stops, shops Close down at eight o'clock at night. You're out shopping. If you're in a mall, you have to be in a store because they lock the doors. And so if you want to keep shopping, you just be in a store. They lock the doors and everyone does the call to prayer five times a day. And are you expected to participate? No. As a Western, you're not expected to participate. And even then, there's a lot of, you know, you'll see Muslim people who are still walking around. They're still doing their shopping or whatever, but no one works. Mm, And many, many people just pull out their prayer rug and and do a prayer. So whether you're, you know, incredibly orthodox and you're doing the thing, or if you're not as orthodox, there's still kind of an air of respect of the orthodox culture. And so all of that, you know, the modesty, the women not being out by themselves, it is all just in deference to their religion, which, I mean, whether or not it should be entwined with government, Mm -hmm. 
they devoutly respect that. And yeah. so you have, you know, I, I, I respect religion completely as long as it's not forced down my throat. Sure. Um, and so to respect those people respecting their religion is very easy. You know, yeah. it's very easy to say, I'll put on the covering. It's very easy to say, you know, I will be quiet when the call to prayer is going on and the prayer itself, and I will take off my shoes if I want to enter a mosque. Um, of course. I mean, there's yeah. a, you know, I when I visit my parents, they're Mormon. I don't walk into my dad's house and go like, fucking, fucking <laughs> Jesus, baby raping Christ. Like, yeah. he would be yeah. like, not happy if right. I did that. Right. right, And it's like, okay, I don't, I, I might say that on my own time, but I'm not going to say it in my dad's house. It's like yeah, unnecessary you know, drama. Right. Everyone, you know, I mean, not everyone, but ideally everyone and us included mm. have this this cultural respect wherever that culture derives from religious exactly. or not. So the idea is when you're in somebody else's house, um, to the extent that you don't feel uh, like your rights are being stripped away, um, and also it is your choice, obviously, you're choosing to go to Saudi Arabia um, and enter into that country and work. And so to that extent, um, there's a respect of that kind of cultural difference. I think the real problem comes in, for me at least, when... I get, for example, message, like this doesn't happen very often, but it has happened before where I'll get messages through like Facebook or Twitter because of course I'm such an outspoken atheist on the podcast. I'll get messages from people who say like, you know, I live in Syria or I live in uh, Saudi Arabia or I live in, you know, Egypt and I don't believe in God and I'm a little afraid to be able to meet other, I don't know how to meet other people who feel the same way I do. I don't know how to keep quiet. Like, I feel like I have to keep quiet about it for my safety, but at the same time, it's very hard for me to continue to lie to myself. And it reminds me of, you know, when I first came out at 15 to my like super, you know, oppressive Mormon parents, but it's like that on steroids because mm-hmm. I at it's least... From the government. Exactly. It's like, it feels like when you're 15 that your parents are the end all be all of authority. And it feels really scary when you're talking to them about that. But when it's your own government, that's basically saying it is against the law to not have this deference for the religion. And it's against the law to be free thinking in that way and to basically be a blasphemer in that way, then it becomes for me like incredibly problematic in terms of civil rights. And I think that that's where the real kind of conundrum comes in. So, I mean, just food for thought, something to think about. And for those of you out there who have, you know, figured out how to listen or have figured out how to um, see some of the videos and some of the stuff that we put out or that I put out and and be engaged and involved in those conversations about religion, um, you know, it's it's hard for me. I, I want to give you good advice and say, stay strong and be true to yourself. And um, and hopefully you'll be able to meet other people and have a good support system. Um, and I'm really proud of you. And just know that you're not alone. Um, but your, uh, your struggle is probably going to be a bit tougher than those of us who were just lucky enough to be born in a place where where we have a, a few more freedoms. And it's uh, sometimes it's just as simple as luck of the draw. It's where you were born. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not something that... Um, that you really had the opportunity to choose. And so um, I'm really impressed and I'm really proud of those of you who are kind of strong and mindful and thoughtful and being true to yourself because I think that's the most important thing that you can do. And on that note, Alex, I wanted to, a couple more things. The first thing is I wanted to ask you these two questions that I ask everybody because I've stolen you away for so long at this point. Um, At the end of each podcast, I ask people looking to the future, what is the thing that you are most concerned about? I like to ask that first because it's a bit depressing. And then um, <laughs> following that, what are you most excited about? Because um, I don't know, it's just so fascinating to hear where people's heads are at. Yeah, I think the thing I'm most concerned about uh, in my own life right now is <laughs> living in Saudi Arabia. Sure, yeah, that's, um, that's understandable. It's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's a feeling of loneliness, of mm. never really fitting in. Um, and wanting to, oh man, I don't know. I'm really just really concerned about moving to Saudi Arabia. <laughs> I'm ex- but that's also what I'm excited about. Yeah. Obviously, it's a huge thing in my life right now. And, and I you have... struggled with the decision for a while, but you've made yeah. it. You're committed. I'm committed. And so I know and that you're, I know you want to go. And I know that you're excited to go and to learn so much. You're going to, so I mean, much. gosh, it's what an be, You know, it, the worst that it can be is, a year to learn and the best that it can be is really the opportunity to open up a new culture through science, you know, a a new culture of 
thinking of women of of creating you know new energy and and all that kind of stuff this mm-hmm. whole new enlightened kind of thought possible through science because it it's real it it you know nobody can deny exactly. these things that we need and so it's really a great way to sort of subvert all of the things that maybe you know maybe we don't like and we don't want to address them mm-hmm. but if we can equal the playing field in science definitely yeah i mean what what an amazing opportunity and i'm so glad that you are going to be um one of the ambassadors who's doing that in a big way um what about what you're excited about what are you looking forward to um i mean other than going to saudi yeah Arabia. <laughs> i, I th- uh, probably then so i'll tell you uh one of the research projects in Saudi Arabia that uh, I had interviewed a a student there about Mm -hmm. was really, it's so awesome and I've been really excited about it, uh, is taking wastewater and turning it into clean water that you can drink. So taking, basically, in any one of these countries that needs water, I mean, this applies all over Africa, Sub-Saharan Africa, Mm -hmm. the Middle East, and you know, even Indonesia, anywhere, any poor country mm-hmm. where you can take dirty water, clean it using microbes. Those microbes give you energy that powers other things that you need, like desalinating the water or mm-hmm. pumping it or whatever. Um, so having this kind of dual use. Yeah. Where yeah. That, that kind of toilet to tap mentality, which we are like so horribly snobby about here in the states which is so stupid because it's a brilliant way to recycle i mean we do it all the time with natural nature is toilet to tap really yeah and so if we can do it using um sophisticated techniques yeah um then we really do have a pure and full water cycle yeah because one i mean another one of the things that really scares me is what we're doing to this environment and not being able to tell know that my grandkids will have a bright future. Yeah. You know, not not being able to see that down the line for them really scares me. But then things like this that are so forward thinking. Yeah. Uh, and and seeing them happening in a culture that we typically think of as being completely backward thinking is it's so great. It's so great. Yeah. I mean that's super exciting. And again, I'm I'm really excited for you and I can't wait to uh, first of all, see the new version, or what's it going to be called? Do we know the PhD movie two? Oh, I I think the name's still in flux. Oh, okay. So. All right. So I, the, the <laughs> second installment of the PhD movie, excited <laughs> to see, but also really excited to hear about your travels and to hear about yeah. all the amazing things you're doing there. And before you go, I have to ask for everybody who um, who's listening right now and wants to you know, see what you've been up to, see you on camera, read about your research, or maybe even just tweet you a question, how can they reach you? Um, my Twitter handle is AskAstroAlex. And I think so is my Instagram. Um, <laughs> and basically, um, I will respond to any email um, at alexandra.lockwood at gmail.com. So cool. That's yeah. great. So yeah, you can send her your questions. You can, uh, you know, look her up as Cecilia. Yeah. We uh, also have uh, outreach video series that we've already been doing. That I, I didn't think. even mention that. <laughs> we didn't even talk about that. PhD TV, right? Yeah, PhD TV, which you can go to phdcomics.com slash TV. And um, I host a, an online sort of travel science show where I interview scientists uh, to get the quirky side of them and their science. And uh, it's called PhD Tours. And so that that's been fun. And there's still many more episodes to come. So. And didn't you even do one recently in Saudi? Yeah. Very yeah, cool. so the, actually the next one that's coming up is about this woman's super awesome research. She's a Saudi girl uh-huh. getting her PhD and doing the coolest research in the world. And so I think that's going to be up online in a week or two. Oh, great. And people should totally check it out because the science is awesome and she's she's a spark plug. She's funny. Awesome. So yeah, <laughs> follow, follow Alex on Twitter. I'm yep. sure that she's going to tweet it when it comes yep. out so that you'll be able to see that. And Alex, again, thank you so much for joining this me. This is awesome. Thank you, Karen. So much fun. And hey, everybody else who tuned in to listen, thank you for being here. And I'm looking forward to the next time we get together to talk to you.